He loves you. We've also seen that his people love their sin as deeply as God loves them. What a contrast. We've also seen that sin truly grieves God. It affects him. It hurts him. Despite their wholehearted rejection of him, we've seen that God has a future plan to deliver them and restore them unto one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is going to involve their recognition of what they actually did to him, their head, their Messiah, their Lord Jesus Christ. Zechariah 12.10 tells us that, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. You have some cross-references there on the screen that you can also follow, but... This is the one that they once cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. Because he was not accepted as their king. It will be realized how much of a colossal and costly sin that was, as they will mourn over that. But to get to this point, the heart that was as hard as a stone in Hosea, as well as at the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is still hard towards him today. Will have been drastically softened so that they are ready to receive the head that they rejected at the first coming. And to show us how those hearts will be softened, God did not limit his usage of similes just to the nation of Israel alone. He also used them to describe how he would and how he will respond to their disobedience. Let me just say this very clearly. To the person who is hard-hearted, to the person who is determined to continue in their disobedience, the person who is Holding out on repenting, let me just say, God will respond to that disobedience. He will. And one of the clearest places that we see this in Hosea, there's many, is in chapter 13, if you want to be finding your place there. Hosea 13 and verse 7 and 8. God says, Therefore I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard. By the way will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call, the fat of their heart. And there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. The animals that God likens himself to correspond to 
the four Gentile kingdoms that we see in Daniel chapter 7 that were used to scatter and persecute the nation of Israel. And we know that the vision here is larger than the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians and then later the southern kingdom of Judah to the Babylonians. We know that it was larger than that because prophetically the similes that God uses here describes what he will be like to his people from a disciplinary perspective. They are identical to what is said of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And it says this in verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. If we compare this with Daniel chapter 7, we understand that beast is a clear reference to the revived Roman Empire. Seven heads, Rome was built on seven hills. Ten horns, ten crowns, according to Daniel 7, 24 and Revelation 17, 12, represent the ten kingdoms that will be headed by the beast. And when comparing this with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this first beast is the Antichrist who will sit in the temple as God, showing himself to be God. Historically speaking, Roman emperors committed blasphemy by proclaiming themselves to be God. And this is precisely what the Antichrist will do. Verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 9, it is said of the Antichrist that his coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. But as it has been said, that John saw these animals or kingdoms in reverse order since he was looking back while Daniel was looking ahead. The point we're making is that the brutality and the punishment inflicted upon Israel historically pictured what is coming prophetically. And it will be ten times worse. All of that will culminate under the rule of the beast who is empowered by Satan himself. So in Hosea 13, 7 and 8, we see an example of what we refer to in prophecy as double fulfillment. That is, where where prophetically speaking, we see a literal historical fulfillment while there is a pending future fulfillment. So historically, we see that the northern kingdom did fall to the Assyrians, just as God prophesied it would through Hosea. And so did the southern kingdom of Judah. It fell to the Babylonians. So as God promised, he was like those four animals to Israel and Judah. And he used those four Gentile empires to scatter and persecute Israel. Hosea 9.17 tells us, My God will cast them away because they did not hearken unto him. Again, God will always respond to your disobedience. And they shall be wanderers, wanderers, sorry, among the nations. 
God will once again use the nations in the tribulation to get Israel ready to embrace the Messiah that she has for so long rejected. But historically, practically, and soberly, it is critical that we take a look at what happens when God's heart is broken over someone that he is in a covenant relationship with that refuses to love him back. We need to see that. If we recall three weeks ago, we affirmed that one of the very names of God is jealous. With that in mind, consider this passage from Proverbs 6.34. For jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Now, so that we are contextually pure... In Proverbs 6.34, it is referring to a man, not God. However, in principle, as we've seen throughout the book, God is heartbroken. And Israel's unrepented unfaithfulness has provoked him to jealousy. And they would taste of his godly jealousy and his righteous anger. Look at chapter 9, and let me just tell you up front, this is some of the most sober reading that you will ever do in your Bible. What we're about to look at in the next couple of minutes, let me just tell you, it is hard to read, but it is necessary to read. Clear, it is wise of us to take note of what happens when we dig our heels in and determine that we are not going to repent. The Bible is very clear in Proverbs 14, 12, that there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. What seems right, what feels right in the moment, even though it's contrary to the word of God, even though it's against what God wants, even though it does not bring God pleasure, glory, and honor. And so, yeah, but it, but it feels right. And that's how we live today, right? I mean, this is what the world whispers to us as Christians. Hey, you just do what feels right to you, what you think is right. Well, let me just tell you, you do have free will, and so does God. So just like you have the free will to choose after you make your choice, then God is entitled to make his in response to yours. Hosea 9 11 and 13, or 11 through 13. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth and from the womb and from the conception. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe. Also to them, 
when I depart from them. Woe also to them when I depart from them, exclamation point. Ephraim, as I saw Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Remember, Ephraim means doubly fruitful. And fertility in the womb was a sign of God's favor. It was, it was a, a sign of fruit or fruitfulness. But the promise in verse 11 was anything but fruitful. The promise was from birth, that is, death immediately after birth. Look at verse 16. Ephraim is smitten. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. From the womb. And so, and so from birth, that is, like we said, death immediately after birth, from the womb is a miscarriage. Verse 14, give them, O Lord, what wilt thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Now, please hear me. I am not saying, and I do not believe that the Bible is saying, that a miscarriage today means that you are not right with God. Please hear that. Israel clearly wasn't, and that's the point. If I can just say what the Bible says... God is speaking to a harsh people who were constantly a whoring after everything that he hated. This is who he's giving a miscarrying womb to. Spiritually speaking, they were whores. This is what the Bible says. That's hard to say, I understand, but that's what the Bible says. The word horem or horems is mentioned, I believe, 14 times in the book as a reference to their spiritual condition. They were spiritual adulterers. From conception, that's infertility. And again, not saying today that infertility is a sign of someone not being right with God. It could be but I'm not saying it is in every case. Chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them that there shall not be a man left, yea, woe also to them that I depart from them. Ephraim, as I saw in Tyrus, is planted in a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murder. I just read that. I think I'm early Alzheimer's setting in. <laughs> I, think, I think my notes are a little... Okay, I see what I did. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Let me just say this. This is where I meant to go. It's where we need to go. And I'll just reference it. But in Deuteronomy 28, 
that great chapter where God clearly shows Israel the fruit of obedience and the fruit of disobedience. Both bear fruit. One is fantastic, one is not. The fruit that is born from disobedience is very bitter and grievous to us eventually. But in Deuteronomy 28, verse 41, what God told them is, you know what? If you go against my word, if you disobey my word, it makes you understand something. You will bear daughters and sons, but you will not enjoy them because they will go into captivity. And this is exactly what what we're seeing. All of us here today could imagine the worst news that we could hear. For some, it would be a bad medical report or the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's something that we just looked at along the lines of fertility. But let me just make something clear. For the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the worst news that you can ever hear is what we have just read. Woe also to them when I depart from them. That is the worst news you could ever hear. Believe me when I say that. Not talking about the loss of salvation. It ought to be clear by now, these are God's people. And he is not casting them away permanently. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. God is putting a distance and he has put a distance between him and them. And that's not what you want. Listen, you do not want God to take a step back from your life. You do not want God to take his hand of blessing and protection and grace and favor. You do not want God to lift his hand off of your life. That is the worst news you could ever hear. Because when God takes his hand of grace and mercy and protection away from our lives, listen to me, life can turn so very cruel and painful. They were going to watch their children die right before their eyes at the Assyrian invasion. I can't imagine how much I love my kids. (laughs) I love my children. And man, let me just tell you something. I wish, I wish to God that, let me just make it clear. I'm talking to the fathers right now. If there's one thing I've learned as a man, I've learned this. Sin may take place on an individual level but the consequences are always collective. And there have been times where I have watched my family go through 
hardship and difficulty and pain because of my disobedience. And, and, and in my heart, I'm saying, God, can you just please keep this between you and me? Leave them out. It doesn't work that way. The sin of Adam and Eve wasn't just between them and God, was it? The decision was very collective. We've all been impacted by it, haven't we? And this is what is happening here. I mean, I, I, I just cannot imagine watching children slaughtered like they were because of Israel's disobedience. The reference to Tyrus that we saw in chapter 9, verse 13, refers to Lucifer, who, like Ephraim, was in a pleasant place, but fell. And the reference there is Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19, is where God is speaking to the king of Tyrus, but he's clearly speaking about Lucifer. And the point to Ephraim is you are about to fall very hard. Chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Again, I, I just, I, I had to tell you, I wanted to prep you of how heavy and sober this reading is. Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled as shalman spoil Beth Arbel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In the morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. Just in case it hasn't been made clear, you do not want to play with God. You don't want to play with God. Neither do I. The tomlet refers to the sound of invasion, the noise of war. Given the context, this would be a reference to Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, from everything I've read and researched. And what the Assyrians did at Beth Arbel, as we read, was vicious and inhumane. Because that's who the Assyrians were. Listen, they were incredibly brutal. And the message was, this is what is coming to the place of your idol worship, Bethel. Listen, we live in a spiritual era right now where many believers have a very immature view of God. It is a view that is very unbiblical. God is so often viewed today in the American church as an equal. Someone who, listen, who needs me as much as I need him. 
where people go to church and they feel good about it because, God, look at me. I'm such a good boy. I'm such a good girl. Look at what I did for you today. I went to church. And, God, I even took it a step beyond that. I even put a little money in the plate. I tipped you. Aren't you so happy, happy, happy? Aren't you so fulfilled at what I've done for you? God, I complete you, right? Today we fix our minds in the American church on the attributes of God that we're very comfortable with. You know, God is so loving. Amen, yes. He's such a gracious God, yes, very true. Uh, he's so kind and he's so good and he's, he's so very long-suffering. I just love all that about God. I do too. But we disregard the fact that he's also a consuming fire. And he possesses, listen, he possesses an intense disdain for sin. Be not mistaken. Christ was and is the end of the law, Romans 10.4. We praise God for that. We are not under the law. We are under grace. We praise God for that. Not contending that whichever. Praise the Lord. But what we do with that subtly is we deduce from that that somehow God's total, unrelenting, vicious, Hatred for sin, somehow we deduce from that that somehow that has lessened because we're under grace. So God doesn't hate idolatry like he used to. God doesn't despise adultery like he used to. Wrong. Wrong. Christ is the end of the law, but be not mistaken, God still is holy, holy, holy. And in a room like this, in a room of this size, some here today are tempting God to remind them that they are not equal. You're playing with God. You're dragging your feet in sin. Tomorrow is always a better day to repent than today. You've got some undetermined date circled on your calendar. Of course, not today, in the future, where somehow you're going to get it right. You're going to stop. Solomon said it so very well in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. <laughs> Nothing's happened yet, so it must be okay. Wrong. For many of us, we've gotten to the place where Listen, we're making sinful decisions based on premeditated mercy and grace. That's where, that's where some of us are. 
God, I know this is sin and I know this is wrong, but you know what? God is loving and he is gracious and he is merciful and he is forgiving and off we go. So I'm going to do this even though I've got clear teaching from God's word that this is sin, this, this breaks God's heart, this is out of bounds for my life, I'm still going to do it because after I do it, I'm going to throw myself on the mercy, grace, love, forgiveness of God. In Matthew chapter 4, it's very clear what you're doing is you're tempting God. The truth of the matter is you really have no genuine intention of repenting. And God knows it. And for some in this room, you are on a crash course collision with the chastening of the Lord and you will lose. And God will use the bitterness of that chastening to bring you to repentance. It has been wisely said that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. Unfortunately, though, for us, repentance is usually, at least at the start, involuntary, isn't it? God gives us chance after chance to voluntarily repent, but it's never the right time. So God has to act in such a way that provokes in us a voluntary repentance. Hosea 5.15, we see that God says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. That is, once again, the status of the relationship between God and the nation of Israel today. He is waiting for them to acknowledge their offense and seek him. And they will. And the fullness of that points to the time of Jacob's trouble when Israel will acknowledge her offense and seek his face and be reconciled. But the statement, there can be no repentance without reconciliation, is affirmed in chapter 14 as we are going to close here as we look at what reconciliation looks like. Hosea 14.1 O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. There was an opportunity for voluntary repentance before the Assyrian invasion. There were opportunities, plural. Hosea prophesied a very long time. But the obvious response was no. They rejected the Messiah and crucified him at the first coming. In Acts 7, they rejected again and stoned Stephen. They had chances to repent God was careful, very careful to tell us that as Stephen looked up, he saw Jesus standing, not sitting on the right hand of God. 
Acts 7, 55 and 56. We are clearly told that Christ now is where? Seated at the right hand of God. After Acts 7, it is clear that God's attention now shifts to the Gentiles. This is what I'm saying. This is what you do not want. It's not what I want. We don't want God to take a step back. You don't want God to eventually say to you, I get the hint. You want nothing to do with me. Okay, have it your way. One of the things that I am careful to teach my children is this. Choices are real and so are consequences. You must understand that. That's one of the reasons why I have never been bashful to make sure that I do not deprive my children of the consequences of their choice, both good and bad. I love to show them, hey, listen, this is what happens when you are obedient and you do what's right in the sight of God. That's great. Man, there, there, there's fruit and there are blessings that come with that. But listen, when you don't, here's how that works too. I will tell your parents, there is a universal language that all children get. I don't care who they are, if they're black, they're white, they're Hispanic, they're Asian, they're Russian, they're Jewish. <laughs> the universal language of all children is consequences. They get that. We should too. Romans 11, 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid but rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them, Israel, to jealousy. God took a step back from his people. And the next time that Israel has a serious face-to-face with God, it will be in the heavy context of blood and tears. And God gives us a visual of what that repentance will look like. And this is what it can look like this morning. But it has to be reiterated that it does not have to come to the point where God has to spank you and drastically deal with you to provoke within you a voluntary repentance. Verse 2. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take, all, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the cows of our lips. What we have in verses 2 through 4 is a portrait of true repentance. Really through the whole chapter, but this is what we're going to look at this morning for time reasons. We're going to look at five simple truths as we close about repentance. Number one, we see, first of all, that true repentance always involves articulation. Take with you words. It's amazing to me, right? We talked earlier. We said that God loves his people deeply. How deeply? To the point where he is giving them a script for repentance. 
Here, let me show you not just how to repent and how to be restored to me. Let me tell you what to say. This is how you get this right. Because God wants to be reconciled with his people. These will be heartfelt words of repentance, not flattery of speech. Psalm 78, 36 Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongues. It won't be that. I'll tell you, I mean, this is no disrespect to any of you who are parents of little girls. I will tell you, God gave us, God gave me, the most beautiful little girl that the world has ever seen. And that's how you ought to feel about your daughter as well, or daughters, okay? I love my Brie. That's my baby. I mean, that's my girl. She, she, she emails me and she texts me, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I miss you. We snuggle all the time. I have to be careful, right, because we'll, we'll go to the store, we'll get out, and we hold hands, and it's like, well, Lori, come here. <laughs> you can join, too. <laughs> come on. <laughs> That's my baby. But I'll never forget the first time she looked me right in the face and lied to me. Man, it hurt. Because I knew she was lying. And it's like, wow. Man. God says, yeah, that's exactly what my heart does when you make vows to me that you break. When you make promises to me, you don't keep. When you sit in a service like this and you get emotional or you, during the worship time, you, you sing words that you really don't mean. You're just lying to me. Wow, that hurt that day. God says, remember that. So often people sit in church and get emotional and flatter God with tears and lies. I'm so sorry, God. God, I rededicate my life to you. Boy, that is a phrase that I am so worn out on. I'm sorry. Because more time than not, it's as genuine as a $2 bill. Because not only is true repentance articulated, true repentance always involves demonstration. It involves articulation, but it also involves demonstration. What were they going to do with those words? Turn to the Lord. True repentance always involves more than speech and feelings. All too often, listen, we identify, we label intent to be synonymous with obedience. 
Well, if I, if I, if I really felt like I wanted to get right with God and, and, and really repent, and man, I even cried, and, 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 and I had every intent of getting right with God, so doesn't that count? No. No. Let me ask you a question. If I said to Lori, Lori, I, <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. I just, I just can't stop committing adultery. I, I just, oh, it's so hard, girl. And, and, and baby, I promise I will never do it again. And I'm crying and I'm saying all the right things. And I walk out the door and I do it again. What did that mean? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. What matters is, do you turn to the Lord? Do you demonstrate that you really mean it? And when we turn to the Lord, what we're expressing to him is that we now want what he wants. Say unto him, take away all iniquity. That's what God wants, isn't it? That to be removed, that to be lifted from our lives and receive us graciously. Let me just say, this isn't about you doing everything you can do in your flesh to turn things around with God. It comes down to a genuine desire within you to get right with God and take his grace to turn it around and keep it turned around. God's grace supply can handle that. It's not a problem. He is rich toward us in grace, Ephesians chapter 2. But the question is, is that what you really want? That's really the question for me and for you. If you're not saved this morning, let me just say very clearly, it's never about you getting it together first and then coming to God. You can't do that. Believe me, you can't. And listen, God doesn't expect you to. He knows you can't. Just as Israel, we receive Jesus at this time, you receive him the same way now, by grace through faith. So I says, and receive us graciously. You accept the fact that Jesus Christ took your iniquity at Calvary and died in your place. He satisfied God's sin debt. Only he can do that. Goes on to say, so will we render the calves of our lips. Psalm 69, verses 30 and 31, you don't have to turn there, but it tells us that praising the name of God with song and magnifying him with thanksgiving pleases him better than an ox or a bullock. So rendering the calves of our lips communicates that they're going to praise the Lord And this leads to the third thing that we see about true repentance, and that is it always involves glorification. You see, the one thing that you and I cannot do in an unrepentant state is we can't do the very thing that we were made to do, and that is glorify God. 
God is deprived of the glory that is due unto his name from your life when you are in an unrepentant state. But when you truly turn and repent, then your life now becomes one of praise and glory to him, which is what he wants. Verse 3, man, I am so over time. I think Jeff goes about 50 minutes. I'm trying. I get a little long-winded. I'm sorry. Jeff, you're listening. I love you, but I'm sorry. I went over, I'm sure, a few times. So he's a gracious guy, right? <laughs> so, um, Verse 3, very quickly. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless find mercy. The very nation that they turn to for help, Assyria or Asher, would be the very nation that God would use as his rod of connection of correction. The Antichrist that they'll make the covenant with for protection and peace will be the very one who will turn on them and brutalize them. And in this portrait of repentance, we see that true repentance, listen, always involves annihilation. Annihilation. Israel would declare that their faith is in no other God but the living and true God. There will be no more adultery, idolatry, unfaithfulness. They are all in forever. Listen, one of the things that we tell people at Midtown, I'm sure it's the same, it's true, it's true here, I know it is. But what, what we tell people is, is when they're in that process where they're really counting the costs and, and considering moving forward in discipleship, we always say, listen, once you understand something, no one can and will follow Jesus Christ without walking away from something or someone, and in many cases, both. I promise you, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, there is something, there is someone that you're going to have to annihilate. That cannot come. I mean, one of the things that we are, I mean, we are crystal clear about in our cost of discipleship class where people are really coming face-to-face with what the Bible says, not what the world says, or the lukewarm Laodicean church says about discipleship. Listen, if you have the same address as someone who is not your spouse, we will not start discipling you. (gasps) That's not discipleship. How can you follow Jesus Christ... How can you call that discipleship when you are absolutely living in a situation that his word clearly says is out of bounds for you? We will not disciple you if you are in a dating relationship with someone who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. I mean, listen, the first goal of discipleship is to establish you in the word of God. What does that mean? What that means is the word of God is my absolute final authority on everything. I esteem all 
thy precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Not some of your precepts. Not the ones that are comfortable for me. Not the ones that I like. Not the ones that I deem reasonable. You got to annihilate something. I did. (laughs) Something's got to go. Someone has to go. Matthew chapter 4. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. What did they do? They walked away from two things. Two of the things that we see in that chapter are two of the greatest hurdles, two of the greatest hindrances to someone following Christ, work and family. They walked away, they dropped their nets immediately, and they left their father. Cannot follow Christ without walking away from someone or something, and in many cases, both. Last but not least, verse 4 I will heal their backsliding, I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. The last thing that we see is true repentance always involves restoration. And God gives us a clear picture of what restoration looks like from his vantage point. Very quickly, Israel will be healed. I will heal their backsliding. Remember, with his stripes, we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Israel will finally accept the death of Christ was for her as well. Israel will be loved. I will love them freely. The love that God has had, the the love that God has, and the love that he will have for his people will finally be accepted by his people. Israel will be spared. Matthew 24, 22, except those days be shortened. He says, for mine anger is turned away from me. God's judgment that could have annihilated them and wiped them out will be lifted sparing them from total destruction. This is what we see. What is it that you need to annihilate today? How has God spoken to you? I don't know. I can tell you how he's speaking to me. (laughs) I'm in this too. (laughs) I'm made of flesh too. I'm not batting a thousand with everything here. And so like you, I need to respond. So it's your time now. It's your responsibility and opportunity to respond to the Lord, however the spirit of God is leading you to. Can we pray?